Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Glad you could join me. Hope you are counting the days, the hours, the minutes to whatever your opening day is. Talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Great show in store for you. This guy hunts almost every day during the hunting season. And for him, it's a long one because he's a pro guide at an upscale hunting lodge here in the West. Rich Nahr will join us, share his secrets on dog training, hunting strategy and tactics, how to shoot better over dogs, and maybe we'll get a couple stories on some of those wacky folks that hopefully give him a big tip by the end of the day because I know he's probably earned it. We'll also talk public access. So much interest in that Sage Grouse interview I did with Andrew McKean that uh, I think I'll steer you someplace else besides Northeast Montana for Sage Grouse. So stick around for that if it's on your bucket list. It's all made possible by Roughland Performance Kennels, Happy Jack Dog Care Products here on South Dakota, and Dr. Tim's Natural Performance Dog Food. Glad you are here with me. Hope you worked with your dog today. Had a good time. You know, we've been working real hard on steadiness with Flick, and uh, we've got a few resident valley quail coveys nearby. They're pretty mature now, and before we even got out of the driveway, he he hits a point, and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, they could be there, uh, right next to the pigeon coop. And sure enough, I walked up into the sagebrush, and... Eight or ten of them flew right over Flick's head. Okay, he wasn't rock solid steady, but he did a 180 to watch him fly away, maybe took three or four steps, and that's all. Now, on a big bunch of wild birds, that's okay in my book. We'll never be field trial steady. We'll never be navd invitational steady. But we're getting there. Good boy, Flick. Good boy. So what's new in your world? Well, uh, we'll find out. I've been asking a lot of questions uh, looking towards opening day. Thought I'd share with you, uh, you know, because yeah, I, I, I go back and forth on this one. Maybe you too. You know, it's often a cluster out there on opening day. And where I go, there's only eight or ten canyons that are worth walking all the way up on a hot opening day for chuckers. If you don't get there at the right time, somebody's already got that canyon and I'm not the kind of guy who's going to go in after them or go in with them for that matter. 67% of you say you do hunt opening day. I I'm I'm still there because who can wait? I mean, even if you don't have much of a hunt, it's better than nothing. And then you're there for the next day and the next day and the next day if you're a lucky guy. And sometimes I am. Maybe you are too. I'd be curious to know why the other 33% don't go. Same thing as me. The crowds? Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, share those thoughts. We're talking a lot about opening day on the Facebook page right about now. So uh, love to hear from you on that one. I also asked you uh, if you have enough ammo for the season. And interestingly, the same numbers. 67% of you said, yeah, I got plenty. And 33% said, yeah, where can I find some more? 
well, I know the feeling, especially target ammo. I think I'm pretty well set for, you know, for game loads, if you will. But for target ammo, I could still use a couple hundred more rounds. But I am doing well. Thank you to everybody who has pitched in on that one, from everybody at the Redmond Rod and Gun Club to um, my friend Ryan and other folks in the retail world. Yeah, it's been crazy, that's for sure. All right, so um, a little bit of news before we get on to our interview with Rich Narr at Highland Hills Ranch, pro guide and dog trainer extraordinaire. Um, seeing a lot more news these days about this, so please, on the for the record, please be careful about blue-green algae. It can kill your dog in one hour. I've never had to deal with that personally, but I do know people who have, and it's really dangerous. Any place you find water this time of year, standing water mostly, but even, you know, like a back eddy or a side pond or a slough off of a moving river could have blue-green algae. If you don't know what it looks like, keep your dog the heck away from it. If you do know, all right, take, take a look and then take another look before you send your dog into that water. It's disgusting to look at, but the end result is even worse. Speaking of worse, it could be worse than some of the folks are experiencing in Israel. Number one, did you know they had quail over there? I couldn't figure out what kind, but they just, they just banned chucker hunting, and they're trying to ban quail hunting over there. They claim that the birds are on the brink of extinction, and they might be in that regard in Israel. So, okay, I get it. I get it. All right. And finally, <clears throat> if your dog is as spoiled as mine, maybe you're already looking for the Royal Dog Biscuits. Yes, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth has launched her own Royal Dog Biscuit line. They're called Game Bones, and they are made with the royal venison from the royal estates of course they are and they will cost you a king's ransom 4.99 pounds that's probably about nine bucks for a bag here in the u.s if you can find one but even the bag features the royal seal so maybe for christmas that would be your dog's stocking stuffer how many stockings does a dog get at Christmas? They got twice as many feet as us. <sighs> Points to ponder. Anyway, the Upland Nation podcast brought to you in part by Sage and Breaker Gun Care products crafted at the highest caliber. Yeah, they're heirloom products. Everything from the new shotgun cases to their CLP, which is their Clean Lube Protect Spray, gun grease, cleaning supplies and equipment of all types sign up for the mailing list so you get first notice no fear of missing out there sign up and the next time fred bohm comes comes up with a great idea on a product you will hear about it before everybody else and also brought to you by hunthuronsd.com they're giving away three hunting restaurant lodge packages get a free information package including 
a directory of all the public access in the area. Yeah, there's 140,000 acres within 45 miles or so of Huron, South Dakota. More birds than people. Learn more about all of that at hunthuronsd.com. You know, I try to talk to the people I like or I think I'll like when I get to know them on this Upland Nation podcast. And we have talked a couple times, haven't we, Rich Narr, there in Northeast Oregon? Welcome to the podcast. That we have. Thank you for having me. You, um, a lot of people, I hear it, you hear it. Oh, that's not work. Man, you know, uh, the whole they think all you do is the glamorous stuff over there, and, and we know better, and we'll get into some of that today. But there there are some incredible opportunities for having a good time when you're the head guide at a high-end hunting lodge. What is the what is the top line there? What what really gets you excited about guiding? The, the people, without a doubt, and we have absolutely amazing uh, amazing guests. Uh, it's different people every few days. So a lot of doubt. The people the people make up. I mean, one, it makes it a great place to work, but uh, two, you know, the different personalities and whatnot that you have coming through every few days it keeps it, it keeps the job from getting stale. I bet, and we'll t- hopefully we'll talk about some of those people in the broadest, most anonymous terms down the road here. I've yet to actually visit you. I feel kind of silly that I you know I drive past ten times a year and I never stop in and say hello, but I will someday. But the the images I've seen over the years are it's incredible. The habitat is uh, from what to what. So most of what we plant is Milo. Uh, so I would say probably ninety, uh, say eighty percent Milo, fifteen percent grass, and then about man five percent corn or so. And that's all all irrigated. We throw a lot of water down. Like you said, we put a lot of a lot of effort into developing habitat that's going to provide birds with a, a place to place to eat, a place for cover. Uh, we have a creek running through our property, so we really have everything you need for just prime upland habitat. And then if you start walking uphill, though, you're going to find a different kind of habitat, aren't you? Yeah, completely opposite. Yeah, very dry, no water, uh, a lot of sage. Yeah, a lot of sage. Uh, it's been on my mind a lot lately. Talked sage grouse last week. Now we're talking chuckers and, and a few huns up there probably once in a while as well. What is, how, how critical is it uh, in a, a commercial operation to have that great habitat? Habitat is key, without a doubt. I mean, where we are in the part of the state, it's arid, it's dry. Uh, without habitat, birds are going to look for another place to call home. So if you can provide them with a shelter, you can provide them with food, you can provide them with water, it uh, does a really good job at attracting and keeping birds right in our valley. Let's just get it off our chest right now. I've guided in the past as well, and you do it all day, all season. Uh, you know, what, what is the biggest challenge about uh, to a pro guide? Well, that's a tough question. Uh, I mean, there's obviously different, different, every day is a different challenge, and it can, uh, one, of the, one of the biggest, I think, not really hurdles, one of the biggest things we run into with a long season. So I'm guiding typically between 100 to 120 days a season. So it comes down to a lot of conditioning with your dogs. And mm-hmm. Animal care is very important. You're not going to get through, uh, you know, 100, 120 days a year of guiding if your dogs aren't, they're not 
they're not the conditioning is very important uh it takes a lot to do it at this this level with, i mean it's different if you're hunting you know two or three four days a season even two or three days a month when you're guiding say 20 days a month things things can take a wear on dogs and vehicles and everything else real quick you know the the dog thing. When we've talked in the past, you you've mentioned that you, you know if you want to be a pro guide at a place like this, you better own a pretty long string of dogs. What what are give us some examples of of that kind of thing? In terms of quantity, yeah. or yeah, yeah. So I mean, once again, it's gonna. I mean, you can do it with four or five pointing dogs, but you're obviously going to put a lot more miles on them than if you're doing it with 10-pointing dogs. So it's tough to say. Everybody's a little bit different. Right now, I'm running about 12 adult dogs, uh, with about three of those being cockers, and then the other nine being adult short hairs. But you'll have guys that will do it with four or five-pointing dogs and one or two flushing dogs. So it really it really kind of just depends on how, you know, how deep down you want to go. And uh, if you're kind of limited to being able to house you know, five or six dogs during yeah. the off-season, yeah. you're obviously going to have a limit there. You have the ability to go and house a string of dogs, you know, like I said, 10, 12, 15, definitely going to make your life a little bit easier during the season. But, you know, the, the amount of work that goes into maintaining a string of dogs like that is obviously quite a bit more than if you're only owning, you know, four or five dogs. Well, the feed bill is enormous and scary. Yeah, <laughs> But there are other things as well. I mean, there's main, what I'll call maintenance, and then there's, um, I guess I'll call it repair, if you, if for lack of a better term. What are the biggest things a guy like us can do? You know, we own one, two, two and a half dogs is the average for my listeners. Uh, what what can we do on a day to day or week to week basis to keep that dog in in peak condition? I'm a, I'm a big fan of free running. Uh, I mean, obviously, not everybody's going to access to you know, an ATV or something to free run off of. Conditioning is very important. Conditioning is the number one thing I look for in my dogs. It prevents injuries. It keeps them going harder. keeps them going longer. Uh, conditioning to me is number, absolutely number one. And you say free running as opposed to roading a dog? Correct. Yeah, yeah. and I'll, I'll, I, I will road, don't get me wrong. Uh, but free running, for me, I, I think there's a lot of benefits in terms of, I like, I like leaner dogs and free running Free running does that. It keeps my dogs light on their feet. They they go hard. They go long. Uh, and I like that. I rode as well, but I'm a big fan of a big. It's easier, I think, to to free run versus road for a lot of people. I mean, you can obviously, if you wanted to, road off of a bicycle, but you can free run a dog almost off of anything. Or nothing. Or nothing. Yeah, you can do it on foot. Exactly, you can do it on foot as well. And you know, the, the other thing that I I bet when you have a, a you know a big bunch, you can free run all your dogs at one time if you really wanted to, couldn't you? Oh, without a doubt. I think it helps to, uh, especially some younger dogs, uh, if they have, you know, a few older dogs kind of in the pack out ahead, it teaches them kind of where you want them to be, you know, out ahead, uh, out where they should be to be productive. How'd you get into this game? God just doesn't, you know, fall into that position. You, you started somewhere. What, what got you so excited about being in this world? So it was never, never really, I never really planned to be a guide. I never really planned, planned to like get deep into it. It, it yeah, it just kind of happens. But no, I, I bought my, bought my first short hair and it's one of the hunting dogs. And well, if you, he, he's not the smartest dog, let's put it that way. So I had him and I mean, obviously I made a lot of mistakes with him. And when you're buying your first dog, a lot of times it's kind of hard to understand what you're looking for and what you're buying until you're, you know, you're on dog number two, dog number three. 
and you start to kind of learn what you should be looking for in a dog. Uh, so I started doing some hunt tasks, a little bit of nab to work with them, and by the age of one, it, you could just kind of tell that it, he wasn't what I was looking for, so I went and got a second dog, and it was night and day in terms of just, I mean, fitability, trainability, and, and dog number two got me hooked, and it turned into turned into dog number three, and along the way, it kind of led for me to uh, doing some field trials here and there. Uh, ended up moving to grad, you know, up to Wyoming from New York, where I originally was from, for grad school, and this was just, this was kind of my retirement plan. I was going to get a corporate job, work out like 50, uh, take an early retirement, and then either guide or train dogs from like 50 to 60, 50 to 65 as a, an early way out of the corporate world. Uh, it didn't quite work that way, did it? No, it just didn't, <laughs> but I'm, I'm better off for it. Oh, uh, no doubt about it. I'm sure that I'm, I'm laughing with you, not at you, by the way. Somebody once told me, you know, he was my pancake dog. And I said, what? He says, well, you know, you make pancakes. And the first one never turns out right, so you throw it away. Yeah, I had one oh, of those. I had one of those dogs, too. Yeah, but uh, but you learn from them as much as they learn from you, whatever that is. What what about the dogs? You, you, you with that many, you mentioned you have cockers and you have pointing breeds. Are, are you partial to one other kind of breed for the pointing side? I've had I've had Britneys. I've had I've had a Britney. I've had a Setter. Uh, I'm a short hair guy, though. That's it's what I like. Uh, they they match match what I'm looking for in a dog in terms of personality, drive, uh, ease of maintenance compared to a lot of other breeds. For me, a shorter is worth that. Uh, it's, it's it's the perfect dog for me, and I stick with them and have pretty good luck with them. Um, with that many, I know, you know this is a loaded question, uh, but do you have a favorite, and does he get special treatment somehow? Yeah, I mean, there's you no know, no doubt. I have a couple of favorites, and they yeah they they definitely get a little bit of special treatment. I can't I can't <laughs> lie about that. But all my dogs live a pretty pretty solid life. I, none of them are strict kennel dogs. All my dogs they they get rotated through a home environment, so they're all pretty well balanced in terms of personality and temperament. But I, yeah, I, I obviously have a couple favorites. You know, I just uh, been there and done that. But tell tell everybody else, uh, you know, uh, without the you know the the secret stuff in there, what is a typical day like for you guys? It, it, we know it starts before the clients even get up, and we know it ends long after they're on their third hot toddy. But what what about in between those times? What are you guys doing? Uh, a, lot, a lot of it, like we were kind of touching on, a lot of it animal care when you have a string of dogs i mean there, there's never a day off there's always some type of some type of work involved typical morning you're waking up cooking breakfast going down kennel chores checking on your dogs uh kind of figuring out who you're going to run that day so that'll start anywhere from depending on depending on the person 7 to 8 a.m you're down there checking your dogs and whatnot uh, so how we do our hunts before we on two hunts uh one one morning hunt which starts at nine an afternoon hunt that starts at two so uh, in the morning, like I said, 7, 8 o'clock, people are typically getting up, going and checking dogs, cleaning kennels, stuff like that, getting dogs ready to go. Uh, by 8.30-ish, you know, you're loading dogs in the truck, uh, getting collars, making sure your stuff charged and ready to go for a long day. And so we typically pick up our guests around 9 o'clock. We'll go out and hunt for about three hours till noon. Uh, noon time we come in, drop our guests off for lunch, head back to the kennel, 
drop dogs off, uh, you know, top off water, kennel chores again, <laughs> eat some lunch. Uh, typically about that time, we have about, a, about an hour to kill at lunchtime where we'll kind of kind of hang out, you know, see, talk to everybody, how did morning hunts go, stuff like that. And about 1.30-ish, you're kind of on repeat of going down and getting different dogs to run, loading them back up, and then we're off to grab Gust again, and we're back out again at 2.15, and we'll hunt until about 5 o'clock-ish. And then it's kind of time to wrap up the day, which means bring Gus back, uh, chat with him briefly, kind of hang out, talk about the day, and then back to the kennels, more kennel chores, get dogs fed, get them put to bed for the night. And if, if we're lucky, that's kind of where our days end. If you don't, if you don't have something else to do in terms of grooming, one of the big draws for short hairs with me is oh, yeah. that you're not yeah. you're not pulling burrs off of dogs very often. But cockers, on the other hand, yeah, you're typically going to have. Uh, and obviously, depending where you live, sometimes up to an hour of grooming to pull burrs. Yeah. Uh, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, the host. That is Rich Narr. He's got his own uh, breeding training operation, rank gun dogs. Uh, that's got to keep you occupied all year round. You don't really have an off season, do you, Rich? No, I'm not even sure what that is. <laughs> Let's go back to the dogs, because one thing you did not mention in all of that, and I'm glad you didn't, because now we can delve into it just a little bit more. Uh, the, the 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 feeding of your dog strategic feeding what do you yeah you know, what do you do and when do you do it for the dogs whether they're hunting that day or not hunting that day? So in terms of uh, like a feeding schedule, yeah. I feed once a day, uh, 6 to 7 p.m., feed him at night. With short hairs, as you know, bloat, bloat can be an issue. So to do as much as I can to kind of hedge against that, I feed once a day. I feed at night after they've been put up for the night. I've had time to kind of, kind of settle in and calm down from the day. And I, I have pretty good, pretty good results from feeding once a day. If I get dogs that need a little weight put on, Sometimes I'll feed more than once a day, but typically it's a, a once-a-day feed schedule for them. And um, what is the protein and the fat ratio in the feed that you're using? 30-20. Uh, yeah, so pretty standard in that regard. Um, have you noticed anything else that helps a dog that maybe does need to put on weight or maybe needs, uh, you know, kind of an extra boost here or there? Maybe it's a young, younger dog or something like that. You've put anything else in their mouth? It's probably not glamorous, but I uh, had, had a field trial pro show me the trick of just using like a cheap, like a cheap wet food, yeah. mix it with their dry food. And I'd use that with really good success, that if you have dogs that do need a few pounds, it typically has worked pretty well for me to kind of get them back up to where they need to be weight-wise. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I had the same lesson from the probably the same field trial pro many years ago, but uh, I've since graduated to those those little cans of uh, dog food you see on TV for the little funny looking dogs, those underneath the dry food seem to do a lot to get my dog to eat when he just doesn't feel like it anymore. So there are you know, lots of things we can use like that, but at least that is, you know, sort of kind of good for them. Yeah. I mean, you have definitely, you definitely have dogs that are a little, a little pickier when it comes to eating. I know I have a couple that you can, you can put a bag of food in front of them and they're going to pick at it. And so, yeah, I've had a few dogs that's really tough to get enough food into them to kind of maintain weight. 
water does a great trick a lot of times. Sometimes just by adding water to the food will, will help kind of down it. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a few tricks, but those are typically typically my go-to if I need to put weight on the dog to get them back up to where they need to be. Are you going to give them anything during the day? I, you know, I used to have those, uh, you know, those energy bars that are no longer available in the United States. Don't get me started on that. But I, I'm always looking for something to give the dog that has no volume to it to speak of, but has some sort of energy to it. Do you carry anything in your vest? I don't. Only only thing my dogs get throughout the day is water. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm, I'm sure different things work for different people, but I'm uh, pretty pretty simple when it comes to that. That it's water during the day, and you know at night they get fed. But other than that, they don't like you said. They don't really get any bars or any anything that's going to try to uh, give them a boost or anything during the day. Yeah, and you're rotating your dogs what every couple hours anyway. Yeah, correct. Yes, yeah. so if, if I'm hunting in a morning, say. Uh, if we're hunting for three hours, I'll only run a dog an hour, hour and a half or so, mm-hmm. and you rotate him out with another dog, and then in the afternoon, bring out, you know, new dogs. So, yeah, dogs aren't being, they're not they're not going five or six hours straight where you, know, you might, might see more of a need for that kind of product. Yeah. Um, we're just getting started here at the Upland Nation podcast. That's Rich Nars. I'm Scott Linden, the host. Rich, I'm going to give you a moment to put your feet up, relax while I pay a few bills around here. I'll be back with you in just a moment. The rest of you don't go anywhere. We got some public access uh, information coming up. And of course, the second half of Rich's interview before we get to those and some more news, by the way. Uh, happyjackinc.com. Speaking of taking care of your dogs, that's where you can get virtually anything you need. I'm going to focus on wound management. Don't ask why. We live in barbed wire country. So Flick gets more than his fair share of seal and heal from Happy Jack. It is a spray-on. So once you've cleaned that wound, you spray this stuff on. It it basically it forms a, a a seal over that wound and it tastes bitter so luckily no cone of shame most of the time for flick with seal and heal from happy jack incorporated happyjackinc.com and to keep him safe on the road he's riding in his roughland kennels and that's r-u-f-f just like flick would say it roughlandkennels.com Man, I love those. Doug, thank you for thinking about putting two doors, one at each end or one at the end, one on the side. So however you configure the back of your truck or your SUV, you can get at your dog. Yeah. And also you can remove those doors if you need to, to clean and the doors will swing both ways. Yeah. Pretty clever. Keep up the good work over there at Rufflin Kennels. Doug, Elisa, and everybody else, thank you for sponsoring the Upland Nation podcast. And that's your cue. Rich, we're back. We are back. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the lodge hunting experience. Uh, A lot of folks have seen me doing the same thing at places like that over the years. But just for the record... I hunt 90% of the time on public ground for wild birds, but the lodge experience has a lot going for it. Here's your chance to kind of wax eloquent on why somebody might save up their nickels and dimes, their cans and bottles, and come out to visit. One, I think it's about the overall experience. Two, I think it's about time. That if you have a lot of free time, you have a lot of time off, there's no doubt you can go and you can put the, the boot miles on to go and 
kind of DIY it. A lot of our guests, they're, they're limited for time. So scouting, as you know, is extremely time-intensive. T- time so we, we take the hard work out of that. That we This is all we do. So we have habitat as guides. You know, when we're not out guiding, we're out training. We know where birds are. Uh, we know what the habitat does, how they move. So if you're a person that you don't have the time to go and, like I said, put the boot miles on to go and do your own hunt, we're able to take a lot of that web workout for you. Uh, at the same time, like I said, it's about the overall experience, that if you're not not looking uh, to go in, out in the middle middle of nowhere and have to stay in a, a, a questionable hotel at best, and we provide <laughs> a, a, a world-class experience in every respect, from lodging to habitat uh, to the hunting experience. And at the same time, we get a, we, we get a diverse, diverse group of guests uh, from people that have never never held a shotgun to wing shooters that have been doing this for 40, 50, 60 years. And we're able to, we're able to cater really really to both types of guests in terms of experience that if you're you're a new shooter and you kind of don't know how to get into it, you know, you're going to come out with one of our guides, one of our guides, and they're going to kind of walk you through from gun safety to, to explaining what dog works, how to, how to set you up to be successful in an upland hunting environment. And if you're another individual or you've been doing this your entire life, you know, it's going to be a little more, a little more fast forward and you're going to get into the hunting, the hunting element right off the bat. And you're going to need, you need say less direction, but you don't have to maintain, you know, four five, six dogs to be able to go and do it. And that's probably what we see with a lot, a lot of our guests as they're coming out and they, they want to hunt behind professionally well-trained dogs. And we, we offer them that ability to do that. You know, and I'm going to just inject one more thing, and maybe you're just too modest to talk about it. But, you know, if a client, and I don't care where you are, you could be at Joe's Pheasant Farm in downtown, you know, whatever. Um, if you open your mind and you open your ears and your eyes, you're going to learn something from the people who are guiding you. And it could be anything from how to approach a a bird and a dog on point to how to hold your shotgun in a better way. Those kind of things are just part of the uh, overall package that uh, if you're observant, you're going to get. Do you find yourselves, Rich, of uh, quite often coming back to the same kinds of things in that regard? What are you you most often teaching guests about safety without, without a doubt safety is the number one thing we're teaching about and we like i said we'll be unfortunate with our guests that safety safety is always paramount with them and they understand the importance of it but we're always stressing it we're always we're always talking about safety we're always keeping safety in mind uh obviously you're familiar with eastern oregon the train we have accidents can happen very quickly in terms of you know if you're on scree fields if you're on some of these side hills, there's a lot, a lot that can go wrong. But by obviously by being safe, it removes a, a lot of that risk from anything bad happening. Yeah. So well, leave really leave your sorry. safety on, everybody, until you're mounting oh, yeah, your leave, gun. Leave your on. <laughs> but go ahead. Well, no, and it really depends. I mean, like I said, we'll uh, a lot of times we we get beginners. They've never they've never hunted. They've never held a shotgun, and uh, which. I think a lot of us find really, really cool when we do get new, new shooters, new hunters. And it's an opportunity for us to kind of share our passion uh, with them. And when you kind of see that that light bulb turn on and you see they get hooked, 
it's, it's a good feeling you'll share what you're passionate about with somebody else and make that connection where a lot of times after a two- or three-day hunt, they're like, you know, I understand why you do this. This is absolutely amazing. I, I understand, and it's a, a really rewarding aspect of the job. Yeah, you know, uh, and I ask this question of every pro I work with and then everybody I interview, um, I'll ask the same thing, and that is, what do you love most about it? And so many of them will say, I love showing other people how to do it. it you know, I've had it. I killed enough birds. I've uh, eaten enough pheasant, whatever it is. Um, these are people who now have become uh, guides, mentors, gurus, if you will. Um, do you you see that in your guys and in yourself? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, without a doubt, I think that's why most of us do it, or at least where a lot of a lot of our joy comes from is that ability to kind of share the, the things we're passionate about, whether that's just you know hunting in general, or if you're like if you're a short hair guy, you're a Brittany guy, to be able to kind of go and display what you have and you know share that with other people that aren't as familiar with it, and it's yeah. So, like I said, it keeps the job from getting old. I mean, you have, you have different people, and I I absolutely love that part of the job. Love, love that, I love that about the job. That's great. You know, uh, one one of the things that I um, I get a kick out of is watching kids when they first get started. Uh, for them, I, I I'm convinced that it's all about the dogs until they pull the trigger. Then it's all about the noise and smoke. What do you, how many, What would you suggest we do if we want to introduce a kid? And what do you guys do if there's a young person who's in your hunting party? Really, the same thing as I would do with like a, a young dog. You know, I keep it fun. I mean, obviously, keep it safe, but we keep it fun. Uh, but and... put, but make sure the collar's charged up. Yeah, I'm a dog at least. <laughs> so I'm not sure what goes. Well, no, and that's good. I mean, even whether it's a kid or it's an adult, end of the day, we want to be safe, but we, we want to have fun. And as guides, if we're having fun, our guests are going to have fun, and it's just going to make for a, a really just a, a great experience for everybody. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that experience, just because, you know, I'm working on a webinar on the topic for somebody, but uh, but also because I think, you know, forewarned is forearmed. If we're going to be a guest at a, at a lodge, um, what are the things that we should know or we should do um, that maybe we hadn't thought of? I mean, everything from etiquette and protocol to you, you mentioned safety. We don't need to go back there. But what are the most important aspects of our behavior when we come to a lodge and hunt with a pro like you? Trust, trust your guide. Uh, I mean, it's obviously hunting. There's, there's no guarantees with anything. Things the environment can change at any time, uh, from, from scenting conditions to, to weather to uh, predation. There, there's a lot of stuff that can change. It's a very dynamic environment. At the end of the day, whether you're coming to a lodge or you're, you're hunting with a, with a buddy, tr if you're going with your, a guide or a friend, trust somebody that you believe, to be, you, know, you believe them to be an expert. You know, put your faith into them. Nobody, nobody takes it more personal than the person running the dogs, your guide, that if something doesn't go as they planned. It's, everybody wants to have a great time, a great hunt, but you gotta, you got to trust your guide to make that happen. And sometimes it's going to involve you know, changing plans halfway through your hunt. Let's go, check, let's go check a different piece of cover, a different area. 
but it's really you have to have complete faith in your guide that you know you're you're paying them to get the job done and to show you the experience you're looking for. Yeah, that's easier said than done. When you're running, when you're running dogs for the guy who founded CNN, he's kind of hard headed. So um, how do you handle those kind of people? I mean, you've been there. You you've dealt with the same kind of maybe with that guy. You know who I mean. I wish I could say that I did, but we, we, we really. We really don't, and it's I, I. I can't look back and really recall having any experiences where you have somebody that's overly hard-headed. Really? Sometimes you'll sit there and you'll you'll discuss like your next move. But uh, like I said, we're, we're beyond fortunate to have an absolute uh, amazing, amazing clientele, amazing guests, and our clients that come here. And like I said, sometimes you may have different ideas how to approach something. But at the end of the day, it's not not very often where where it takes more than hey this is this is what I think we should do this is what we're going to do and everybody's on board pretty quick. Oh, you are one lucky guide, I'll tell you. Maybe maybe the boss over there whips them into shape before he introduces you to them. Uh anyway, um I want you to visualize now, close your eyes, take a deep breath. Think about the stuff that is in your vest as you're out on a hunt that we probably haven't thought about bringing with us that we 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 ought to what's in there that is a good question uh well i keep it i keep it pretty simple in my best as uh, a first aid kit's always always my best that for my dogs for people uh Honey packets, especially early season, sugar levels are important. I've, I've never had an issue with a dog needing it, but I know I know people that have. Yeah. So it's something that if your dog does kind of go down from from being ran a little bit too hard, that you can kind of get them back up and go and get them back to the truck and kind of diagnose it once you're back to summer so it's not in the field. Yeah. But other than that, I keep most of my gear, most of most of my important gear in my truck. Uh, like I said, I travel pretty light with a vest. Well, you're, you're relatively close most of the time. Some of us are out for six or seven hours at a time, and we're, we're you know, miles from the truck. Um, the honey thing, though, I, man, I, I've seen that in action. It does work, and it is worth bringing along. Uh, and anybody can find those. You know, just go to a restaurant and ask them for a couple of those. You know, if they serve tea, they've got honey in little plastic bags, and that's what you want there. Um, how about uh, for your dog? Uh, you've got a collar. Uh, are you using GPS out there? Yeah, I use GPS everywhere. It's, it's cheap insurance, whether I'm out guiding or I'm out trading. GPS is GPS is always on one of my dogs. Always on all of my dogs. I never have a dog on the ground without GPS. I've had uh, I've had a dog fall off a cliff, uh, broke a leg from it, and uh, that was a one instance where it justified. I'll never complain about the price of GPS yeah. uh, when, it, when it does save you from losing a dog. Absolutely. It's a, like you said, the cheapest insurance I've ever purchased. Oh, wait, I didn't have to. <laughs> Lucky man. Yeah, yeah, knock wood, especially these days. Um, hey, you ever get to hunt for fun? I mean, granted, I, okay, you're being diplomatic. You're going to say, well, every hunt's fun, but do you ever get to hunt without clients? I do. Now, not a ton 
uh, I stay stay pretty busy. I'm happy to stay busy during the season. A few times a season, though, yeah, I'll, I'll be able to kind of get out, get out on my own, do my own thing. And last year we went to South Dakota. Uh, that's typically kind of kind of my go-to. I absolutely love the Dakotas. So I do two to three times a season, but I'd obviously like to do it a, a little bit more as I start to get older. Oh yeah, and yeah, that's that's where I would start if I had to limit it to one or two states. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about uh, your dog training philosophy. Uh, most everybody who's going to listen to this interview has a couple and a half dogs, and they're always trying to make those dogs the best dogs they can. What is what's the top line? What are the most important aspects of 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 training a dog to you? To me, I, I really think genetics is the foundation. Start with start with solid genetics, and I think it goes. I think it goes a long ways, especially especially for a hunter. Uh, if you get a dog with good genetics, I think the bit ability is easier, the trainability is easier, and I think you can focus a lot more just on developing the dog than actually having to say formally train. Uh, you buy a pretty well-bred dog. A lot of them come out with a natural point. If you can just put a dog on birds. A lot of times that's going to get you, at least from my experience, it's going to get you a, a long ways towards having a finished hunting dog without having to, without having to, like I said, do more formal training when needed. Uh, that, you know, a, lot of, a lot of these puppies that we'll, we'll bring in as guide dogs or say like a trial prospect, you, you provide birds and that dog's typically going to learn to point on its own. But I mean, as you know, birds are key, so really hard to have really hard to have a good dog without access uh, to birds and I, I like to like I like to start with a dog that's well bred and then just kind of kind of throw birds at it until until the dog's naturally starting to point once it's exhibited you know that pointing behavior at that point I'll kind of start on with more formal training and you know kind of putting putting more of a polish on my dog how do you put that polish on? And I'm being a little selfish here because this is where we are with my dog right now. Um, and you've been in the NAVDA system, but you're also a pro guide running as many dogs through as many birds, through as many clients as you can. Um, I, I want Flick to be steady to wing shot and fall. And you've trained to that. And I'm at that critical juncture where, um, yeah, you know, most of the birds that hit the ground, he's pretty steady on. But do you do anything in particular to reinforce that? Repetition. And then again, you can say about everything with dog training is that it really just comes back to repetition. Repetition and I don't, I don't think I, I don't use as many birds as I think a lot of trainers do, but. I use a lot of homing pigeons, a lot of a lot of groundwork, a lot of drills, and um, how I train, I, I use a belly collar. I'm a big, big yeah. fan of a belly collar. I think you can get more done with less pressure. And at the end of the day, that's what I'm always looking to do. I'm always looking to get the behavior that I'm looking for with as little pressure, as little force as I need to. Uh, so in terms of breaking a dog through the fall, like I said, I, I start everything on the neck. Use the neck as a steering wheel for a dog. Once, like I said before, once the dog starts to show me that pointing behavior, and I think they're ready to start the breaking process, I'll move a collar to the belly. I use the belly up until a point that I'm like, okay, I think this dog's this dog's ready to be say finished. You know, broke through the fall, and I'll start slowly going back to the neck until that dog will stand through the fall. 
without needing any pressure on the belly, and I can once again go back to my neck for everything. Yeah, and we've graduated, but I'm, I'm tempted once in a while to go back and put that collar back on his flank just to remind him, for example, you know, a day or two ago, he was kind of creeping a little bit. What what do you exactly, are for those of you who maybe don't get it, it's an electric collar, but Rich, that's as far as I'll go. Tell people how you use that belly collar. And so my understanding, my belief, is that it's a lot easier for a dog, at least with my dogs and I experience, a dog understands easier that if they're moving, they're, like you said, creeping. And that's one of the, one of the behaviors I use a belly collar to fix. Like you mm-hmm. said, you get a dog that's standing pretty well through the fall, and they'll get steppy, uh, wanting to take a step or lift leg, stuff like that. Uh, so like you said, you know, I, I wouldn't be afraid to move, uh, move back a step, you know, to kind of give it the results you need, you know, so putting the collar back on the belly and dog gets a little steppy, you know, a minor correction, you're using as little force as you need and you, you do that. And really until they're, until they're doing, exhibiting behavior you're looking for. And it's just like a lot of repetition, a lot of repetition, uh, kind of day like you're setting your dog up for success. And, uh, I, in addition to an e-collar for one end or the other of that dog, what's one other essential piece of training gear that you think everybody needs to invest in? Oh, uh, but uh, a check cord, without a doubt, uh, a check cord. How long and how do we use it? Uh, okay, more than one check cord. Uh, <laughs> ten foot and a thirty foot is what I use. Uh, thirty foot. Is what I'll, so a young dog's going to get started on a check cord. Once you start to introduce a, a dog to birds, I want to, like I said, I want to set the dog up for success. A check cord, one, helps me build a pattern. I want a dog in front of me. I don't want a dog behind me. At the same time, it kind of gives me a, me a handle to, to work them into objectives. Yeah. And, and then I mean, the e-collar is really just an extension of the check cord, mm-hmm. but, but wireless. I love it. Yeah, thousand foot check cord. Yeah, that's what that's what Ronnie Smith called it. I think. Uh, let's go back on a hunt. You ready to go? You, you got some ammo. You got you got your gun. Okay, keep it open. Keep the safety on. We're walking through the field. Actually, you don't get to carry a gun when you're guiding me, do you? Uh, not not often. <laughs> there's, there's, there's times you will, but typically no. Yeah. So I've got a gun. It's open. It's loaded, but it's open and the safety's of course on and 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 we got a dog that's looking birdie, you know, and so so he slams a point. You've got a cocker spaniel probably at heel. I don't know how you guys do it, what your style is there, but you got a cocker too. What do you want me to do at the point that that pointing dog has stopped? Be be ready be ready to kind of get in the game, get in the hunt. So once the pointing dog's on point, we're working our way up to it. You know, get off depending on how many how many people we have, get off to the left, get off to the right, you know, eyes up, barrels up. Uh, as you approach, be ready and once we're in gun range, you know, we're typically sending that cocker in and at that point, yeah, be ready, get guns up, guns closed and wait 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 till you see blue. Once that bird's in the air, it's over dogs. At that point, yeah, safety's off and it's a safe shot ticket. I love it. All right. And safety first, as always. Good. Have you uh, ever, ever run into anybody who, um, who simply cannot hit a bird? <sighs> no, but close. No, but close. <laughs> and we haven't hunted yet. So that's what you have to look forward to. Well, 
there's a reason I don't carry a gun. <laughs> Is there anything we can do? I mean, uh, I know I all the things I have to do. I'm, you know, I got a curved spine. I'm colorblind. I'm cross dominant. I got a club foot, but. Those are my stories, and I'll stick to them. How about somebody else? Can you square away somebody in the field to become a better shooter with, a, you know, a wave of the magic wand? Uh, no, not, not, not with a wave of a magic wand, but people kind of like training dogs. I mean, with enough repetition, yeah. enough practice, you definitely, definitely can, you can definitely see a big change between, like, day one and day three. So, yeah, yeah you're not going to do it instantly, but over the course of a few days, you can definitely get people definitely get people hitting a little little more on is it because you're doing something to them or they're just figuring it out a little little bit of both and like so we're with a lot of our guests they very rarely do you see anybody that doesn't want to be a better shot <laughs> regardless if it's their first day or they've been doing it for 30 years everybody always wants to be a better shot uh and for a lot of times it comes down to i think like uh, the, the head game of yeah, yeah. people get in their own head they start to overthink things and that's typically where I think a lot of, a lot of the, the, the poor shooting comes from is when you start to kind of suck yourself out or you, you overcomplicate it. And you can kind of, kind of just let that go and let your, let your eyes, let your brain put it all together. I think you feel a, a big performance typically once people start, start thinking less. You've probably seen this. I'm going to write a story about this. I think somebody might want to, want to read more about this. But at the end of the day, Every group is different. Every client is different. Uh, obviously, we hope they all have the same thing in mind, and that is, do, did I bring a really big tip for Rich? But besides the big tip, how do these? Uh, what What are some of the more unique ways you've seen people kind of celebrate the end of a great hunt? It, they're all great, so it's only a matter of uh, how they celebrate. Besides the usual stuff, have you seen anything interesting and unusual? Typically. Wine and cigars, and that's, that's one of my favorite ways to celebrate the end of the hunt. Uh, so, yeah, wine and cigars is probably probably more of the norm, but I'm not not sure if there's much of a better way to uh, kind of celebrate the end of end of a hunt coming. Yeah, I can think of one better way. A 15 year old single malt would would top it, but that's about it. You're right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think we have some of that too. So yeah, that goes with it. Yeah, it sure does. Rich, if you're going to leave us with one bit of advice that would make us a better hunter, whether we're going with you, one of your boys, or just on our own, what, what is the one thing that we haven't talked about yet that you think would help us become better, How, however that means, hunters? Get out there and do it. Uh, and I think that probably applies to more than just hunting in life, that just get out there and do it. Uh, yeah, it, it might be rough the first few go around. You might you might go bird this. You might just put in some miles until you kind of find what you're looking for. But I mean, I don't. Know. I've never been afraid to kind of just dive in with both feet and work things out as I go. And I think it's worked well for me. And I think uh, it works well for most people if you're not afraid. If you're not afraid to take that first step and just kind of learn learn from your failures, learn from your mistakes. Probably gonna probably gonna help you out in the long run. I'm looking at a quote from the famous jazz pianist Thelonious Monk right now. He says, sometimes I play a song I've never heard before. Yep. It's rule to live by. That's Rich Nart. I'm Scott Linden. I'm the host and the head guide at the Upland Nation podcast. Rich, thanks so much for being part of the Upland Nation podcast. Thank you. Take care. I'll take care, but I'll also take you along. Got a little bit of news coming up right now. Then we have some talk about a 
maybe the best place to go for sage grouse this year. It all starts with the news right now. If you're in Pennsylvania and you don't have a license yet, well, go ahead and get one through the Mentored Hunter program. Yeah, kids, young adults, anybody who wants to try it can now hunt waterfowl in addition to the Ruffies and the Bobwhites in Pennsylvania, learn more about that at their website. The Game Commission has got a website with the Mentored Hunter program all over it, so find out how to do that. And at the other end of the country, out in my neck of the woods, youth hunters are now open. The signups are now open for the Department of Fish and Wildlife's free pheasant hunts. These are run by volunteers. Yeah, you probably know one of them. Thank you all for helping out on those. Those hunts start in September and they run through October. Find out more at myodfw.org. And this portion of the Upland Nation podcast is brought to you by Dr. Tim's Performance Dog Food. If you haven't seen the video, take a look at it. I had a lot of fun making it. Thanks to Dr. Tim Hunt for helping me put it together. You don't really want to haul ash, do you? That's A-S-H, by the way. Don't go there. Ash is one of the things that goes into dog food, and it has to be in there because it's what makes kibble stay kibbly instead of gloppy. But the amount of ash is critical. Now, you need about 7% to keep it kibbly instead of gloppy, but much more than that, much more above 8%, and all of a sudden, you got to wonder why the dog food maker is putting it in there. I tell you that because now you're forewarned and forearmed. Ash is just junk. It's beaks, feathers, bones, instead of the good stuff, meat and protein sources that are way better. Find out about all the ash content in all the formulations at D-R-T-I-M-S. And because you're a loyal listener, you can get 30% off just by using the code UPLANDNATION at checkout. This land is your land. Last week we talked about Andrew McKean's land up there in northeast Montana. Doesn't sound like a very good sage grouse year, but if you learned enough and you're fired up about going somewhere, as usual, ask anybody who knows what they're talking about in the sage grouse world, and they're going to send you to Wyoming. There are two areas in the state, officials, you know, with borders and all that, state um, that you can hunt sage grouse area four and area one. No, not Area 51. You can't find sage grouse there, but you can find lots of aliens. But Area 1, which basically runs the middle of the state from the south to the north, is the best from a numerical standpoint, especially the southwest portion of Area 1. You can keep four sage grouse in Wyoming. Not that you should, but you could, and that's probably as good an indicator as any of how many birds they have on the ground. Their season runs the second half of September. Area one, southwest portion, Wyoming, for bombers. And that little tidbit is brought to you by my website, findbirdhuntingspots.com. New material every week. This week, four tips 
to help your dog have a great road trip. It's all at findbirdhuntingspots.com. And on that note, thank you for listening. Thank you, Rich Nar, for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Sure enjoyed it, and I hope everybody learned a little bit of something from Rich. If you did, and if you enjoyed listening, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, just one friend. I appreciate that. That's how we grow. And we talk every day at the Wing Shooting USA and the Upland Nation Facebook pages. So go on on to one of those. Go on on. Yeah, I just made up a word. Go to the pages. Talk with me. Ask me a question. Love to answer your questions. Thank you to all our sponsors and to everybody who carries on the conversation at Facebook. I'll leave you with this from author Christopher Morley. Think about it for just a moment. No one appreciates the very special genius of your conversation as much as the dog does. Thanks again for listening. I'm Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. See you in the field.